0: I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Holly Ann Tufan. She is an associate professor in the School of Integrative Plant Science with an adjunct appointment in the Department of Global Development at Cornell University. In her work with plant breeders, social scientists, and research institutions, Dr. Tufan explores how agricultural research can positively contribute to gender equality and social inclusion. Her broad education includes a BS in biochemistry and a minor in chemistry from Colorado State University, a master's in molecular biology and genetics from Turkey and a PhD in biology at the John Innes Center in Norwich, in the United Kingdom. She also holds a certificate in Africa and International Development at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. I heard Dr. Tufan speak at the University of Missouri's Agroforestry Symposium, and I thought her unique insights might give us some breath in our understanding of food and agriculture, especially in light of the urgency of climate change. Welcome, Dr. Tufan. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to have you because I really hadn't considered gender issues that much, as I should. I mean, I've certainly investigated male and female differences in nutrient needs, but I've never really considered differences in agriculture until I heard women farmers share some of their difficulties, say, in obtaining bank loans or how difficult it was to find tools and equipment to fit their physiques. So I'm curious to know how you became interested in gender issues in agriculture.
1: Great question. Thank you, Melinda. I think in certain points of your career, you have these moments where you realize what you'll be doing for the rest of your time (laughs) as a professional. And for me, it was that moment where I realized my personal passion for gender equality and thinking of women's rights really collided with the work that I was doing in agricultural research around crop breeding. So it was really this interest, exactly as you're saying, what do women smallholder farmers really want or need from some of the crop breeding products that we were developing? And the more I was digging in that space, and I realized that we really don't know enough. There is a dearth, there's a blind spot in looking at the complexities of gender issues and how they manifest. And so it really drew me to the space. And I realized that there's this big challenge around gender bias and research broadly, both for research, agricultural research, but broadly for technology and design that really has serious negative consequences for women.
0: Well, it's interesting. Your first slide in your presentation... Grab my attention, because here I was at an agroforestry conference, learning about plants, learning about agroecology, climate urgency, and your first slide was of a male
1: crash test dummy. Why did you choose that image? <laughs> I think it's a really powerful example. If you look through the literature on gender bias and design, it's just such a perfect example. So I love to start with it, A, it gets attention, and B, it's really pertinent. So that crash test dummy really represents what it means to have men's bodies, behaviors, and preferences as default for research and design. That crash test dummy is what we call the standard crash test dummy used in car safety testing. And interestingly, it's based on the average American man from the 1970s. So that body that we're seeing and testing with is A, just based on men, and B, based on data, data. So we didn't know enough about what's happening in car crash simulations to women's bodies. And the result really is that women are more likely to sustain serious injuries in car crashes. So it's this way of showing it's not just about caring about inclusion of different body types. There's a serious consequence for women. And that is a great example to show that. But it's not just about bodies. It's also about cultural norms or what we say is culturally acceptable for men and women to be or to do. And you see research around that, too, because gender is a part of our social structure, really shapes how we behave, what we have access to, our relationships and our families, our organizations, society at large. And that social structure really permeates research, both in terms of who performs the research, who's a scientist, but also who are they researching on and for. And that's really well documented, that gender bias is well documented in STEM, technology, health, medicine and engineering.
0: This is so fascinating because I've done some work with media literacy and I paid close attention to what kind of visuals do we have who is representing the scientist and it's often a white man in of course a lab coat <laughs> right but when you yep. think about you could have people of color in fields and they are performing science as well. It's just that, as you say, what are the cultural norms that are
1: very much driven by the media images that we see? Exactly. And how we're socially conditioned. I mean, I had one interesting awakening moment that Harvard has this implicit bias test that you can go on their website and do. And as a part of a training, I was engaging with it. And I took the test for gender and profession. <laughs> this kind of reveals your implicit or inner bias around who should be performing which profession or which job category. And I came out as biased. And I really realized that someone who really thinks about these issues every single day, it's so ingrained and so deep in how we're culturally conditioned that it's hard to, it's you have to actively realize and control for it. And I think that's a part of the broader conversation is how can we all be more aware of what we're thinking and these biases that we all carry around.
0: Right. You know, one of the basic tenets that I learned in media literacy education was that everyone and all the media that we see has a bias. So we may strive to be objective, but it's impossible to be that way. And so the first step is just as you did, recognizing that we all come to the table with a bias, and I think by sharing stories about what we've experienced maybe helps break down some of those barriers that come with bias.
1: Exactly. And I think one space that I find is particularly underexplored, and that's what really drew me to that line of research, even though there's a lot of documentation around technology and design, I would say, in the bias, agriculture research or food systems, there's a lot written on gender and food systems, but really looking at the bias within the research is almost non-existent. And we can think about that as two ways, gender and agriculture, you know, the women who are the researchers, what are their experiences? Also the women who engage with the outputs of the research, the farmers, processes, and consumers. So really looking at that duality and seeing what do we know about those experiences and are we really serving the needs of everyone? And as you said in the beginning of the show, the groundwork here is that women really globally, these numbers are global, face systematic barriers in engaging in agriculture, right? Less access to land, resources, credit, knowledge. So they're held back in a lot of ways from really meaningfully engaging. And that permeates ag research. That's really what I'm interested in. It both limits women as researchers, but also limits the benefits that women farmers get from that. Right. And I
0: think that we would be wise to consider who gets to ask the research questions. Yep. And what questions get funding and what those sources of funding are? And does that influence the outcomes? I mean, it's really complicated, but I think the more we can ponder these different kinds of questions, the better off we'll be.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And one thing I'm noticing is there's greater attention. So you talk about donor and donor interests, and those really drive a lot of the research agendas. I work mainly in agricultural research for development. So this is international ag development work. And there you really have the donors' interests drive a lot of the work. And it's encouraging because we do see more attention. Who's asking those questions? Who's supporting that work? How much is it supported? And it's really more important in a way in that space because the innovation and research occurs pretty far removed from the lives of the smallholder subsistence farmers that we're looking to reach through that work. And the systematic barriers that women face in those settings limit them from engaging in research and extension more broadly. So it's really important, you know, to think about who's supporting it, who's doing the research, and really important to think about pairing with local partners. That's a part of what we do is not coming and asking these researchers in other settings, but really saying, how can we do collaborative, co-created, contextual research that serves the needs and interests within those communities?
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned smallholder subsistence farmers, because in preparing for this interview, I looked at some of the United Nations papers on gender inequality and climate change, and I didn't realize just how much women in particular, who tend to be the smallholder subsistence farmers, suffer more from climate disasters. And I think it's important for us when we look at climate change and agriculture that we consider the role that women have in these rural villages struggling to collect water, for example, and more.
1: Exactly. And I think that's an area that we're becoming more aware of. Smallholder women farmers, I mean, we know the barriers that they face. That's a part of the picture. I think it's fascinating that we know this, but are we acting on it? Are we doing enough about that knowledge? Because this is not new knowledge. I'd say for 50, 60 years, we've known that smallholder women farmers face these barriers, have less access to all these resources, and are more negatively impacted by any shock, whether it be climate, conflict. All of those kind of culminate as you're a vulnerable individual. Your vulnerability is only increased by those shocks. So climate change is another shock layered on COVID. You see the same patterns with COVID, for example, both in terms of women losing their jobs, but also women smallholder farmers losing access to their markets or their livelihoods. So it's really a complex picture, but the bottom line remains the same. If you're marginalized and you're vulnerable, that only gets exacerbated by what's thrown at you. And I think we can realize this and know this, but how do we account for it in the work that we do? I think that's a whole nother question and another, the extra mile that often we don't think to go.
0: right. I'm so glad you're pulling back the curtain on this. One of the pieces that I read from the United Nations was that when there is a disaster, there's added pressure on girls who have to, say, leave school to help their mothers manage the increased burden. And women disproportionately are responsible for securing food, water, and fuel. Mm -hmm. So when we think about leaving school, to me, what that says is when we have less education for girls, that's when we see worse population statistics. So the best way to control population, for example, is to help girls get an education. So all of these things are
1: connected. Absolutely. And we like to think about that too, is what do the girls themselves want to be doing? And I think that's coming back to women and girls' empowerment is creating spaces for them to really exercise their own desires and agency, right? A lot of the work is really around that, saying, is that loss of education, as you're saying, limit that girl's future potential? I and mean, that's not a choice that she's making, that's a collateral after effect of what's happening to her and her family. You know, we see this a lot. You have I mean, the leaky pipeline in ag research, for example, is really interesting, too, and not looked out very well. What happens if those women and girls dropping out of education and really not being able to get the education they need to build careers in some of these fields where their perspectives and their input is really underrepresented? And I think that's true for a lot of different sectors. But I think agriculture in particular is very male-dominated as a profession, And that's really reflected in research. And there's even debates around who's counted as a farmer. We think women provide farm labor. But if you look at the statistics around who's the household head making decisions, those still tend to be default men. Mm. So you're having them provide household labor, care labor, but that's not recognized or even counted, which again, creates this blind spot about what's happening in their experiences in these systems.
0: All right. Let me take one break because we are halfway through. And I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Holly Tufan. She's an associate professor in the School of Integrative Plant Science with an adjunct appointment in the Department of Global Development at Cornell University. Her research interests focus on gender equality and social inclusion in agricultural research. I want to bring forth some research that had to do with Narika rice, which was, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was promoted to farmers as increasing yield. But what was discovered with this new type of rice was that it was extremely attractive to birds. So there was a lot of work, extra work, that women had to perform in keeping the birds out of the rice fields. So you looked at not only yield, but this increase in time poverty and drudgery that is often faced
1: by women. Yeah, thank you. I was not part of that work, but I'm a big fan. (laughs) So that was indeed, you've captured it very well. It was an introduction of a new variety of rice in Uganda and kind of tracing narratives around what happened to the farm families that were adopting it. And you really do see this as you're capturing their really a a negative consequence, especially for women and children, because it's more attractive to birds. They're spending more time shooing away those birds in the fields. And that's taking away from their leisure time. That's taking away from their education. That's taking away from other things they could be doing. And it really falls on their shoulders because that's the labor that they're providing in a household setting. And we have other examples too, these stories. Another favorite one in terms of men's bodies being a model for designing agricultural machinery And really social acceptability on who can operate those machineries. There's a great story in Vietnam about the introduction of a two-wheeled tractor, for example, and how with all good intentions, bringing in a small tractor to be able to work on small farms and reduce the amount of labor involved, what actually happens is men tend to operate that machinery and then they're actually saving their own labor And that women are excluded from that savings or that benefit, and men really perceive their own power or position to be enhanced by the ability to access that machinery and use it. So again, it's just asking the question before we go and design, before we do any intervention, are we asking the right questions? Are we really thinking of the consequences for everyone involved? In both of those cases, the answer is no. We haven't tested it in different settings. We haven't thought about who's providing labor. We haven't thought about who can drive a tractor and what that means within a household if someone drives the tractor. So I think it's not throwing it away as unintended consequence, but bringing that intentionality to the design phase. And that's really what we're trying to do is shift that and say, have you taken everyone into account? Have you heard all voices? Who's represented as you're actually embarking in the design of an agricultural technology? So, do you have a set
0: of questions that you would like all researchers to consider? It's sort of like a list of have you considered this, that?
1: (laughs) There are some guides out there. I think they're pretty comprehensive at this stage because agricultural research and, let's say, crop improvement is a whole set of decisions. It's from who will I breed for, what will I breed, in what setting to how will I do that breeding? Who will I test it with? How do I release it? And who does it get to? So it's really kind of a pipeline. And there are various documents and I've engaged in these spaces to produce those kind of guides. And a lot of it is about voice and representation. Have you asked the right people? Have you considered these negative consequences? Have you considered harm? Have you considered benefit? And most importantly, if you don't have the evidence, do you need to do more baseline research before you actually embark? So doing more intentional baseline what we call gender analysis who's being affected by how much and i think it's also some of the basic principles that we actually look at in our research is increasing voice through new methods as well collaboration collaborating with local partners doing big international ag research but the actual data that we have for crop breeding and preferences for example is often biased so we're really looking to fill that gap we have a firm focus on inclusion so we engage a full diversity of social identities in those communities so we're not missing anyone. And Mm -hmm. we really do this because without understanding the range of needs and preferences by those users, we can't really deliver those varieties that they need. So those are some of the questions that we can start with.
0: Really what you're doing is you're helping researchers become more involved in critical thinking.
1: Exactly right. That was my second point I wanted to come to, thank you, is really critically examining crop breeding itself. And that's been a shift that I've recently embarked more in, because what you realize is some of this, we can do one research project, two research project, we can talk about these issues, but unless we critically look at what is representation, what's voice within the research decision-making, what are the power dynamics? You know, we started asking these questions around power, who's shaping the research agenda, who's there, who's at the table, who's not, because what we're realizing is it's not a band-aid. If we really want to change the way agriculture research is done, I mean, the uncomfortable truth is that gender equality is only attained by challenging power structures. And part of that is agriculture research and the power structures within that. And it's mainly research by and for men at this point. So how can we make that shift? And we also don't want to just critically examine, because I think there's a lot of criticism already. We want to complement that with alternatives. You know, how do you bring these two together and say, how do you model new research methods and processes? How do you do this better? How do you actually intentionally design with and for women? Because if we don't offer an alternative to business as usual, we really can't get very far.
0: Right. So you did some interesting research where you interviewed women individually, you interviewed men individually, and these were partners, and then you interviewed men and women together to see if there was differences. And I believe there were questions about reasons for growing diverse crops, if I'm remembering correctly. yeah.
1: What did you find? That was really interesting. And this is what we called intra-household research. So this is a type of research that's done basically to understand decision-making or dynamics within a household. Because often when you do this research, if you think of us and our social structures and families, if someone came up to your door and said, what kind of cereal do you like or what do you eat? Whoever opens the doors answers that question. And the same is true for a lot of the SAG research is we don't often consider who's in the household and who's making decisions. decision. So in that case, we thought, okay, what if we're asking the wrong person? What happens if we ask spousal couples and then ask them together and see if we get different responses? Because that helps us design better methods. Do we have to talk to the couples together separately? Does that make a difference? And what we did see in that particular case was the traits. So these are the crop traits, the things that people care about, like yield or disease resistance or maturity time, were different in some cases between men and women. But the interesting part is when they came together in a joint interview, those differences averaged out. So they really negotiated to kind of a common ground, which told us, should we be interviewing couples together or should we keep doing this three-way split? So we can better understand the data that we're getting. Because if we don't have good data, we're not making good decisions for breeding. And we also saw differences in adoption. Depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers on, do you grow a new variety? And that was really shocking to us because that has serious consequences for thinking about where varieties are grown or who is growing them within the same household if you get different answers. That says either we're asking the question wrong, (laughs) or we're not considering that relational part of gender. And gender relations are really all about power within a couple. How are they negotiating some of those decisions? So that was more of an eye-opening piece of research that got us to do more work in that space.
0: And what did you conclude? Would you continue to do separate interviews, or do you think it's okay questioning the partners together is fine?
1: I think the jury's still out. (laughs) I think that's exactly, we need to do a lot more work to understand the consequence and how widespread that is. You know, this is one case in one crop in one country. So is it a blip? Is it repeatable? Can we actually, and this is where the rigor of this research comes in is, let's see what happens when we scale this. For now, I think it's still good practice to get both. That's what we try to do in a lot of our research is understand different perspectives But whether we need three sets of interviews, I think that is something we still need to research a little bit. It's interesting because I'm thinking back to my days as a
0: clinical dietitian and the difference in when you were just meeting with the person who needed the care versus meeting with perhaps that person and a spouse or a partner right? and the differences in responses that you'd get with just with regard to household health and food questions. So yeah, it really matters. And we don't think about that enough. Not at all. So I want to know what differences you did find. If I'm reading the research that I've seen thus far, it looks like men are more concerned with status issues and tradition,
1: but women may be different. This is something that I'm really passionate about right now. We have a lot of in the crop breeding space. We've done some literature reviews on this too. There's this assumption that women care about food, food quality, feeding their children, whereas men care about markets and income. And this seems to be generalized across many different crops and contexts. And I have to ask myself, for example, are those real results or are they a byproduct of how we see the world? Is that kind of the care duties that we assume women are having also makes us look at the research in that light? So I think some of the results make sense. Some of them I suspect it's also how we're conducting our research and how we're asking our question. But what we did find in another set of research was the sheer complexity of social differences. So what I mean by that is, it's not just about men and women. This is something that's changing pretty rapidly, and it's a great opportunity that I'm seeing in this space. There's a big shift away from binary men versus women and treating women as the monolithic group within any context. And we know that just as food and food systems are complex, so is a population. So how do we understand those differences, the different racial, religion, background, culture? How does that shape those preferences? In one case, what we saw was the household food security status, the location, the gender of the respondent all shaped different outcomes for what they wanted from that particular crop breeding program. So what that means is it's not just about being a man or a woman. It's about how does that intersect with different social identities? And this has been shown in other sectors, the racial bias and gender bias, how they intersect to kind of doubly discriminate against women of color. How are we actually extending that thinking to agricultural research? And we're slowly getting much more interesting data on that. Mm.
0: You know, one of the reasons why I brought up your educational background is because I was so impressed by the breath. I mean, here you were in the United States working in a fairly male-dominated field, biochemistry and chemistry, and then you were in Turkey and the U.K., and your research on cassava is in Africa. So you must see the world through so many
1: different lenses. But I think that's what we need to do in this research, especially. I think it brings an understanding that I'm able to see different viewpoints. I think that's a strength, but it's also realizing over the years that there's not one way of doing things. There's not one good or bad or or setting, for example. And the second awakening was these issues are global, whether I'm a researcher in the US, whether I'm a researcher in Turkey, whether I'm a researcher in the UK. Those experiences were comparable a lot of the time as a young woman working in this field. And that was actually very surprising to me because I didn't expect that. So I think that also drew me back to saying, are there differences that we need to appreciate? But are there also common denominator issues that we could tackle that would really benefit many different researchers globally, especially women working in agriculture?
0: Yeah. You know, we are running short on time. So is there anything that you want to make sure our listeners know?
1: I would love if your listeners walk away with basically an understanding that overcoming this gender bias is simply good science. It's just and good science. And in the world of crop breeding, I think that means that gender equality and this inclusion piece shouldn't really be a side effect, but a guiding goal. So the more we can focus our work on it, And I love to talk to breeders about this. And if there are any breeders listening, (laughs) we spend a lot of time appreciating and embracing crop genetic diversity. Could we extend that to really embracing social heterogeneity and take it to the same level of attention and accountability in our research?
0: All right. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Holly Ann Tufan, Associate Professor in the School of Integrative Plant Science with an adjunct appointment in the Department of Global Development at Cornell University. Thank you so much, Dr. Tufan, for your intriguing research and your time today.
1: Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for having me.